0: I'm Alex Mito, and I'm James Milley. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Welcome back to The Artist Business Plan. My name is Alex Mito, I'm CEO and co founder of Superfine Art Fair, the most widespread art fair for artists in the US. As you may know, we're also a business resource for all things art, artists, and marketing of art. Next to me is my partner, James Milley, Superfine's other co-founder and our managing partner. Say hi, James. Hello. And it is a beautiful fall day here in New York City, and we're here today with Kenny Schachter. Kenny has been curating contemporary art shows in museums and galleries and teaching for more than 30 years. He's taught in the Graduate Department of the University of Zurich, as well as the School of Visual Arts here in New York. He was the recipient of a Rockefeller supported grant in Mexico and has contributed to numerous books on renowned contemporary artists. Kenny also writes a regular column on ArtNet.com in addition to writing widely for various international publications, including New York Magazine and The Times Magazine in the UK. Beyond that, Kenny is well known for his own collection of contemporary art, which includes works by Tracy Emin, Paul Tech, and Rachel Harrison. He had a retrospective of his art at Joel Messler's Rental Gallery in New York in the summer of 2018 curated an exhibit at the Simon Lee Gallery in London in fall 2018 and a one-person show at Cantor Gallery in LA in February of 2019. Next up, he has a one-person show at Bloom and Poe in 2021. Welcome to the show, Kenny.
1: Thank you. So now,
0: before we get started, Kenny, I wanna ask you something to help our audience get to know you better. You've obviously been around art and artists for a long time, but what is the earliest memory or experience that you have of art? And did you realize then that you'd be spending your life working with art?
1: I mean, I had no one in my family involved in any capacity in art. So I was never one of those kids that that you hear stories about that they would they visited museums throughout their childhood or galleries. I didn't even know galleries existed until I was nearly 27 years old. Besides going to the East Wing of the National Gallery in uh, Washington during my college years and seeing the work of artists like Warhol and Cy Twombly and Basquiat like I said, I didn't know that there was a commercial dissemination system for art. And not until in 1988, before you fellas were born probably, someone, I was procrastinating between jobs and I went to the Andy Warhol estate sale in Sotheby's and besides his encyclopedic collection that he had built up largely by trading with other artists, but the auction house was also gearing up for their yearly spring contemporary post-war art sale. And that was where it first came to my attention that art is something that's actually bought and sold besides appreciated. I would say, unfortunately, today it's more bought and sold than it is appreciated, but that's another podcast.
0: (laughs) That's a whole nother podcast, but I do appreciate the story. And it actually segs really well into one of the questions I have for you as well, Kenny, about how you did discover that art actually was for sale. Now, before we really dive into the questions, I just want to provide a little context and backdrop for this particular episode for our listeners and as well as for you, Kenny. So on this podcast, we get a lot of artist advisors, we get successful artists, but it's honestly, it's an honor having a collector like yourself here with us today. And I think what we can really provide our audience who are primarily artists is some perspective from a serious longtime collector on how a collector thinks and maybe how artists could better engage with them. So with that in mind, What are a couple of the factors that really draw you in to an artist or their work and make you think like, God, I can't get this work or this artist out of my mind?
1: Well, I think what also gives me a perspective for your audience is that I make art, I write about art, I curate exhibitions, teach it, and also buy and sell it besides voraciously collect it. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm always paying for it. Uh, The best collectors have no money. They find ways of getting money. But (laughs) in terms of what draws me to specific works or artists, it's really an impossible thing to codify or to, to articulate because it's almost inexplicable. And I can't say it's a purely gut visceral reaction because any intuition or any reaction, whether it's aesthetically, mental, or on any other level, a gut instinct... It's all based on all of the information and knowledge that you've accrued to that point in your life when you're standing in front of a work of art, so I'm not one of these kinds of people that likes to go to studio visits and wax on and on about what I think and how I feel about it. The point is that you're making like I always say it's like it's like a computer in a car in a modern car. The computer could be making literally over a million calculations in the course of four seconds, and really I think. In a nutshell, you're just weighing how a particular work of art looks in relationship, in relationship to one came, what came before, what's happening contemporaneously, and how that work will appear in the near future. Or how, you know, imagine when you live with a work of art, which is a static object by definition, unless it's some kind of video or film work, you need to, you invest a lot. I mean, I look at art every single day of my life that I live with. Art has to be multi-layered and have a depth to it to draw you in year after year, which is a lot to say, to hold your attention. When most people have an instant attention span, which lasts no more than the blink of an eye, to be able to look at something even more than once for a fleeting moment is a lot to ask for. So again, like I can't give you a formula or say that I look for green with a
0: little
1: brown <laughs> Right. Or that's really it. I mean, the Supreme Court was asked to define pornography in a particular decision they were adjudicating. And the justice said, I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. And when I see art that speaks, I mean, sometimes there's art that I dislike on first blush and over repeated viewings. Or over the course of mulling something over, over a period of time, I come to appreciate it more. And so I always say that people don't understand the relationship to the attention spans, which are vastly reduced. That art is a slow-burning process, and it's an organic process that takes years to really assimilate and appreciate.
0: So you said you weren't going to give us a concrete answer, but I pulled a little bit out of that that I think is helpful. So art being a slow burn, right? That's something that I've experienced when buying art, which is that sometimes I don't buy at first glance or at first blush, like you said. It's something that, you know, it might stick with you over time. And I kind of take that as something for artists to sometimes be a little more patient and not necessarily think someone is going to swoop something up the second they see it, but that it might, might have to stick with you and grow on the collector, so to speak. So I don't know if I'm paraphrasing a little there, but I I think it's interesting. Also, if I can
1: give advice to artists in studio visits, it's also like give the person some space to be. Oftentimes I'm desperate myself or you're anxious to get a favorable affirmation or response, but just let the people be and don't overbear upon them because taking the time to do a studio visit, I think that, I mean, I understand when people come to my place, and whether they're looking at my art or my collection or whatever it is, it's a meaningful experience for the person like in my shoes if someone's visiting me and your expectations can run the gamut of, you know, you want some kind of feedback, obviously. It's best not to like push people too much, whether it's looking for a reaction or trying to get them to buy something, just let it, let it run its course. And if people want, I, always, I mean, I'm the worst salesman, so perhaps I'm not the best judge personally, when I buy stuff, I just let the work speaks to me. And really, for me, I mean, I don't mean to be dismissive, because I make art myself. But the best video visit for me is one that's missing the artist, because if the art can't communicate on its own terms, then it's probably incapable of communicating on any terms.
0: It's an interesting perspective. I and mean, we've seen and very much the opposite with our fairs where you know, the visitors to the fairs like to connect with the artists and about 75% of our visitors is like, that's one of their favorite aspects is meeting, connecting with artists. So I think it just depends on the way you collect art and the way you look at it. But I think it is, it's definitely an interesting perspective to have. I think marrying kind of the, the two philosophies, even if someone enjoys meeting the artist in person when they are considering buying the work, you have to remember that you, as the artist, are not going to be standing in the person's bedroom once they have bought right. it. So the work does need to speak for itself. It needs to be able to stand the test of time more than just that exhibition where you're there explaining it.
1: And I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't mean to be reductive or flippant. No, no worries. <laughs> there are some collectors that will only buy art after forging a relationship with artists. So I don't mean to be dismissive in that way. I mean, the situation is, as a collector, sometimes you hate the artist and love the art, and sometimes you love the art and don't like the personality of the person. And if that's the case, sometimes you're better off just collecting art from an estate of previously deceased artists. <laughs> you know, to worry about any of the problems. You know, just be calm and don't overdo it, even if the person is desirous of forging a relationship. Got it.
0: And I think you may have actually answered my second question, which was the other side of the coin. And if there's anything an artist can say or do, whether during a studio visit or just during their life, that actually turns you off from buying their work or something that gives you a sense of like, I don't want to own this. Is there anything like that for you?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, I work by myself. So I appreciate having conversations with people, and now that we're in this, still deep in the midst of this whole corona situation, where travel has not only been curtailed, but it's all but evaporated, and because I don't have a gallery and I don't regularly come into contact with a large group of people, a community of people, a lot of my relationships come from, say, Instagram, which a lot of people would belittle or mock it in a certain way, but I forged so many great relationships for me have come from being accessible to everybody on Instagram and I mean, for better or worse, I'll say it again, it's the bane of my existence, but anyone who has any questions to ask me, I respond as best I can and if there's any way in which I can help or contribute, I feel compelled to do so. Like you reached out to me and I'm sitting here talking to you. It's not going to hurt me. And if you can inspire someone or help someone, then there's something really pleasant to come from that and positive in this day and age where no one has time for anything that doesn't involve remuneration, say. So, I mean, for me, just the thing that could turn me off is just, I understand having expectations of a positive meeting. I understand there's a kind of reciprocity or a give and take that you expect, But I can't really overemphasize, don't push. And if I go to someone's studio and they're bearing down on me and looking for instantaneous, you know, it takes time, like I said, for things to simmer and to brew. Let them be and give them the space.
0: So give them space. Nobody likes that use car salesman technique, like (laughs) let them... Actually, appreciate I sell
1: the cars more. too. You want a car? I have a car too. I'm selling. <laughs> but
0: we'll have to talk about that separately. <laughs> so I read an article in Gallery where you describe yourself as an art hoarder, paraphrasing I like coming the hoarder from there. Hoarder of everything. Hoarder of everything. Uh, and I can relate. Uh, James and I, we've gotten the same from some of our friends as well. So let's talk about what you called a bottomless compulsion to collect. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're pretty filled up. Yeah, if if we rotated the screen, you could see ours too. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, it is is a compulsion. We definitely have felt it. So what are some of the ways an artist might be able to pick out the people among us who are compulsive collectors, you know, nurture the relationships with them, and also to, this is one that I feel is big, leverage the relationships that they have with the most supportive collectors to build a bigger career, build a stronger career?
1: Well, I mean... There's no divining rod to figure out who has an uncontrollable urge to accumulate things and acquire things. There aren't ready formulas for any of this stuff. And being someone who loves to just accumulate, I mean, I, when I lived in the UK for 15 years and I moved, it took a team of like four people four months to dig out of it with a shovel. <laughs> and that's when I had the first idea to do an auction at Sotheby's last year called The Quarter. I got some slack from some artists or some people that are involved in our world because I sold everything with no reserve. What I thought was really important or a really kind of generous gesture on my part is that, I mean, in a lot of instances, I lost a fair amount of money, and in, another, in other instances, I made money so it all evened out. But people think art is so expensive, and my point is it's not. Whether it's me foolishly giving away the jewels, the family jewels. Uh, with no reserve. I started collecting in works on paper and prints and I have a very non-hierarchical democratic collection so I'm looking across from a poster by Christopher Wohl that was the invitation to his first text show in 1989 in Max Hetzer Gallery in Germany and I derive as much satisfaction from this poster that I do from a painting on canvas that would cost substantially more money
0: also pinpoint in that same article, you mentioned that before 1988, when you started collecting, you had no notion of art being bought or sold, and you'd really only experienced it in museums during college. And you'd be surprised, and or maybe you won't be surprised, how many people out there who could buy art, they can afford it. They go to galleries and fairs and have literally no concept that they can actually buy the work there. And that's something we've really rallied against with our business model at Superfine just creating an environment that's friendly to people at all stages, artists at all stages, and just encouraging people to see themselves as part of the equation. So if I'm an artist, are there any ways I can encourage people like yourself, when you were you know, at that stage, who maybe haven't bought art before to take the plunge and take a chance on me at the artist?
1: I always mention in podcasts and the teaching, I lecture all over the universe on a regular basis. And like I said, I tell people, if you have something to ask me, don't be shy. If you want to go call up David Zwerner, good luck trying to find him. It's like the first documentary that Michael Moore made when he was trying to find the CEO of General Motors. And, you know, typically at art fairs, these people, the the principals of the galleries are accessible or in your fair, the artists. So just don't be shy to kick the tires and to ask questions. I answer every single DM that I get from no matter how banal I get insults, trolls, And I get some glorious people that I've created real life relationships with. So, you know, I give people the benefit of the doubt and I encourage people, don't, people are so timid. Even when I do studio critiques in art schools, the artists are typically so kind of um, reserved. So you have one life and follow your passion and do whatever you have to do. And, you know, social media, and things like Instagram in particular, affords you a very simple way to enter people's inboxes that was completely impossible before 2010. And just getting the visual work out and offering it for sale on your own Instagram page can really go far away as long as you continue to push people in a subtle way.
0: Yeah, and I think that lesson of not being timid or shy, right? I think it kind of applies to both sides of the equation. So if I'm an aspiring collector, or I'm at a fair, I think that's actually something we hear often is I don't know how to go up and talk to the artist or go up and talk to the gallery. And likewise, for you know, the artists who are on the other side of that, I mean, expecting this from being welcoming enough to allow someone who may be a little bit timid to ask questions and have those conversations, I think is solid.
1: Yeah, and also like, I'm not a terribly patient person, but really art defines me from head to toe. So it's the only thing I care about and I rarely go off piece that I don't see theater. I rarely see movies. I rarely even want to communicate with people that are not art. And, you know, you just initiate a conversation that entails the name of an artist. I did a book where I interviewed hundred people from Harlem to Wall Street, whether they knew who Andy Warhol was and Jasper Johns and some more contemporary artists like Matthew Barney, just to find out because this country has a very, I mean, things have changed radically over the past 20 years. But even like 25 years ago, most people in this country were, the art world was ghettoized in the sense that it really only wanted a very particular audience to engage with. In particular, the audience that had a lot of money to patronize galleries. And now the growth, even for something as mundane as like, there was a Christie's auction a few days ago, and there was like an audience of 280,000 people. So that just shows you by leaps and bounds that the audience for art today is, I would say, the biggest it's ever been in history. When I am speaking with someone who is not an art person, I will always take the time and explain like how something, like typically it's a piece like a Twombly scribble drawing or Bruce Nauman nails literally grating against the blackboard practically to just take the time to explain to someone why this is something meaningful to me and why they shouldn't you know, dismiss it so readily.
0: I like that. Okay. And I think again, just kind of going back, you know, our audience being artists, right? Like someone comes up to you at a fair booth or even via Instagram, especially right now where we're not hosting in-person events, being willing to talk to them about why this, why this means something to you, why you care about it. I think you know, getting over the timidness or the shyness If I'm paraphrasing, let me know. But I think that's a good thing for people to take into account. Some artists actually, they come to us and they want to be, let's say, like an investment quality artist. They want someone to buy them and hopefully sell their work down the road to create more of a market. Is there anything you would say to an artist who wants that, who's looking to, you know, because we're always telling people, buy the art you love and to the artist, sell, you know, sell art to people who love it. But what about, you know, if I want to raise my profile and become an artist that is invested and in, is there anything you would suggest to that artist?
1: Yeah, switch businesses. <laughs> Look, there's nothing wrong with making money. I quite enjoy it myself, the few times and rare times it does happen. If that's your motivational factor in your life or your work, you're in the wrong business. It's, it's just not going to work. I mean someone like Larry Gagosian is one of the most crazy, passionate human beings on the planet when it comes to living with art and collecting art and not flipping art. People have such a misconception of this man and a lot of other people that you get to that point by being knowledgeable and people that buy art and buy it for the wrong reasons or people that make art and make like 500 of the same paintings There are many, 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 many instances of art going up, 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 300, 400, 500, and then down to 3,000. You have to keep that in mind. There's just no way. Gagosian liked to make money, for sure, but he also spent a lifetime reading and learning about art to be able to do so. So... Is If you're a great artist and work 20 hours a day and you want your work to sell harder, there are things you could do by promoting it, by getting great people behind it. There are things that affirm value and create value in the world of art, showing with good galleries, being in art fairs, being in auctions, being in museums, being in biennials, and these types of things, which all contribute to an increasing value. But you know, how do you write a hit song? You can't purposefully make a great book or you, it just has to be good. And you can't prescribe that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always the number one thing. It has to be good. So we're running out of time here, but if you had one word of advice for an emerging or mid-career artist who's getting their feet wet, getting out there, participating in fairs, meeting buyers, doing all these things, what would that one word of advice be?
1: Perseverance, tenacity, And don't get discouraged because people constantly will try to destroy you or make you miserable and put you down and dissuade you from doing what it is you do for whatever reason. I mean, I think people have too much time on their hands personally. Like Warren Buffett of all people, since you're talking about business, and this is something I've ascribed to and I've tried to teach my children from day one before I knew that he said it as well. But I spent half my career, I mean like years, defining myself through the negative, defining myself on how I didn't want to spend my life. And I refuse to capitulate on any level. I do not compromise. I mean, I'm flexible and I'm not gonna like lose a sale because of a $1,000 or whatever it is. I'm very flexible in that regard, but find what you love so much you would do it for free. You want to find a way to carve out a role for yourself where you can follow your dreams. It sounds so corny, but like, I love what I do so much, I can't tolerate a Sundays because the phones go down, the emails stop, and there's too much downtime. And (laughs) I'm so engaged with my audience, whether I'm teaching or my writing and learning. I mean, really, what I love about art is just, I mean, that was one word that lasted six paragraphs. No, that's fine. Art is a a never-ending class of learning and that's really what I love so much about it. It's never the same from one day to the next and just be patient and never take no for an answer.
0: I love it, perseverance, tenacity and not taking no for an answer. Thank you so much Kenny and to the artists out there listening, Kenny's been here with us today sharing his amazing perspective as a collector, an artist and just generally a person obsessed with art and you're gonna wanna visit our website at superfine.world to gather the show notes from this show. You can also keep up with Kenny around the New York and global art scene via his regular column on Artnet, as well as online on Instagram at kenyshachter.art. And uh, it will be online there. And this will also be in the show notes in as my well. Archives are there. In the archives, <laughs> you can find everything. <laughs> as always, I'd like to end the episode by sharing a quick quote with you all. And today that quote is, the subject matter of art is life, life as it actually is. But the function of art is to make life better. And that's Gertrude Stein, an American author and early collector of Picasso, Matisse and other major modern artists. Kenny, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been this afternoon. Thank you for joining us here. We'll hope to see you again soon.
1: Bye sometime.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, would love to. Everybody else, have an awesome rest of your day. Remember to stay on top of your business plan, get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this in all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at Superfine Art Fair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Just shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoneysuperfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoneysuperfine.world.